The following is Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. No promotional fees are paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. And good afternoon. Bit of a different show this week. Uh, sort of the Eric and Eric show. Eric Ryder, how are you doing? I am doing well. And this is Voices of Experience. It is. Usually with Paul Casey. With Paul Casey. Uh, Paul is uh, taking the day off, a well-earned break. And uh, I'm Eric Ryder. You're Eric Crema. We are filling in. Absolutely. And we have a special guest in the studio we'll mention here shortly. Um, but just sort of a little bit of housekeeping This program airs each and every Wednesday, 3 p.m. to 4 p.m., right here on AM 1150 KKNW and also AM 880 KIXI. If you miss this show or you tune in a little late and you think, "Mm, that sounded great, I wish I had heard the whole show, here's the beauty. It all goes to podcasts. So where you get your major podcasts, they can simply log on, right, Eric, and grab that and download it. Absolutely, yeah, wherever you find your favorite pods. Become part of the family. Uh, Voices of Experience is brought to you by Paul Casey. Paul, I hope you're having a great day today, and thanks for an opportunity for us to come in here and uh, sit in your stead, I guess I should say. In the studio directly across from me is my nephew, Alex. Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me here. (laughs) Good. For those that don't know, each year you come out and you get a chance to stay with our family, and we do a bunch of fun stuff. Uh, How old are you now? I'm 16. You're 16, and uh, you still like your uncle enough to come out and visit. That's nice. Appreciate that. Um, now, you're from a town up north. Talk about that town a little bit. So the town I'm from, it's Kettle Falls. It's got 1,600 people in it and one grouch. That's the saying. <laughs> one grouch. Okay. Yeah. Every year at Town and Country Days, which is our local it's our local festival, the grouch, he is, uh, or she, they're selected from oh. one of the citizens of the town, and then they're the grouch for that year. It's like a badge of honor. Yeah. Yeah. Now, your school... Not your current high school, but your prior school, your mom is the uh, principal. Yes. My sister. Yeah. That's very cool. Talk about that school for a minute because it's very interesting. It gets such a bad rap, and it was one of the most amazing schools I've ever been to. I've been to round four, and by far, and this school, Orient is its name. It didn't have ever more than 50 when I was in it, and... You really knew everybody there. 50 students. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So Every- you knew everybody. Yeah. Interesting. You were friends with everybody. There was no bullying. <laughs> <laughs> no bullying. I like yeah. that. Eric. Uh, not well, even from the grouch? Not even from the grouch. <laughs> no. Not the what grouch. are the, du- I'm curious, what are the duties of the grouch? Do they steal Christmas or what, what goes on? They, um, they get this little shirt and pretty much anytime you see them in public, you just be like, oh, there's a grouch. We got to watch out for them. It's. It's not much. It's just right. a name. Yeah. So yeah. they don't have to hassle people or... They're in the parade. You know. Yeah. All right. I'm to get the grouch outfit on. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> when I'm in town, there's two grouches. Well, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I take it if with you me. don't get your coffee in town. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, it is a beautiful part of the state. And Alex, thank you for coming into the studio today. I'm sure we'll chat a little bit more. I do want to let the audience know that uh, some of the really cool upcoming interviews we have... Uh, we have Matthew Williams coming up here very shortly. And then uh, Dr. Dory Borgeson, uh, he is Dean of the College of Veterinary and Medicine 
for Wazoo. Um, he's going to talk about animal care and the role that the vet school there is playing in conjunction. You have a lot of experience with farm animals there on your, your little acreage there, right? Yep. Yep, yep. So you know about that. You might might be might learn something. Just stay tuned. Uh, Eric, we are going to go into that first interview with Matthew Williams. He is a victim of, uh, or was a victim of hate crime, and that ultimately led him uh, to a lifetime study of what motivates people to hate and presents ideas how we can reduce that hate in society. I think we need more of that, right? Absolutely. There's enough hate in this world. We need people that are on the opposite side of that coin. You said it. Let's and get, yeah. yeah, Paul Casey talked to him recently. Let's, let's listen to Paul Casey's interview. Matthew Williams, founder and director of The Hate Lab and a professor of criminology, has joined us. He was inspired to devote his life to finding the causes and hopefully solutions to our society of hate because he was the victim of a hate crime when he stepped out of a British pub for a smoke and was attacked viciously by three men. His original goal was to become a journalist, but his trajectory changed after this incident. We talk about the attack during this interview. He has written a book called The Science of Hate. It has been described as a timely, groundbreaking exploration of the tipping point between prejudice and hate and what we can do to stop it. Are we wired to hate? I spent a lot of time trying to figure that one out. We are wired to prefer people like ourselves, however that might manifest, but we're not necessarily wired to hate. Our brains were formed over hundreds of thousands of years to keep us alive. Ultimately, obviously, the goal of any species is to survive. And in the case of human beings, the way we managed to do that was by cooperating really well in groups. And species that cooperated most effectively in groups were the ones that survived. So our brains developed under those conditions. And ultimately, what that meant was is that we've become a very groupish species. Uh, we like being parts of groups. When we're excluded from a group, we get very anxious and unhappy. And um, we see it in kids as young as the age of three, actually, and psychological studies have found that. So this groupishness on its own isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's actually very good. It's kept us you know, on top of the tree um, for, for millions of years. Um, but it can be weaponized. So when it is weaponized, um, we can see the seeds of prejudice and hate creep in. And what, what do I mean by weaponized? Ultimately, if we want to be part of a group, or we want to cooperate with a group, there are very often those outside that group. Who they are, what they are, depends on social context. And it doesn't necessarily have to mean that that outside group is treated badly. But if we are told that that group are a threat to us under any circumstance. They could be, for example, an economic threat in some way. They could be a symbolic threat, a threat to our culture in some way. Then all of a sudden, this groupishness can become a negative trait, and we can start to discriminate against that group so they don't damage the in-group or what we perceive to be damaging the in-group. And we're all like that. Uh, there's not a human on the planet that doesn't have this sort of groupishness to them. You know, it's part of our wiring. Um, 
but it's what's layered on top, what I call the accelerants in the book, that can turn this innate group into something of threats. We, we have super threat detecting machines because we've had to have been just to survive on this planet. But parts of our biology, those parts of our brains and elements of our hormonal makeup can bring us to a point where um, hate can manifest if we are exposed to the right set of accelerants. And the second part of the book goes into those accelerants that we can, we can discuss in length if you wish, but I'll leave it at that for now. Does online hate incite violence in the streets? That is so timely right now. It is, and it's certainly some of the most recent research that we've been doing. And the research studies done in the U.S., in Germany, um, and in the U.K. on this, that that are building an evidence base that suggests there is a link. They did a similar study in the U.S. They actually looked at uh, every time Trump tweeted about uh, Muslims and the number of anti-Muslim hate crimes on the streets and found very strikingly similar patterns, very strong correlation between what Trump was saying and the amount of anti-Muslim hate crimes in counties across the United States. Again, very convincing analysis. And we've done something similar in London. We we looked at general anti-black and anti-Muslim hate speech posted in London, um, geolocated it in, in parts of London, and then counted the number of hate crimes. And we looked at that over a year, and that we found that every time hate speech on social media increased, there was a corresponding increase uh, in hate crimes on the ground. You were a victim of a hate crime. And because of that, that shifted your uh, professional development. You wanted to be a journalist, and then you took another turn and went to get a master's degree in criminology. Could you describe what happened to you? Sure, yes. This is about 20 years ago. Um, I just finished my degree in sociology in the UK, and um, I was out with friends celebrating in London. Um, And I was just standing outside uh, a bar uh, having a cigarette at the time. Uh, It was a gay bar. Um, I'm a gay man. And a young man approached me and asked me for a light. Everything went black. You know, I have this taste of blood in my mouth, and I just discovered that I'd been attacked. Then there were two others that joined in the attack, and it became very apparent then that it was a homophobic attack because they were using homophobic slurs as they were beating me up. It was a horrific part of my life. It changed my personal life. For example, I've not you know, shown any kind of public display of affection because I'm terrified of being targeted again, so it's still with me. Um, and it also changed my professional life too because to, to be a journalist, as you said, but I knew that the answers to the questions that filled my head at the time weren't to be found in journalism, but they were to be found in criminology and in the, in the study of crime and the science of crime. Um, and that's that's why I, I embarked on that master's and then eventually a PhD to, to, to unpack why... And those those men targeted me that day. You know, what was it? Was it was it about protecting their turf, trying to communicate to me that I I, I wasn't that I didn't belong? Was one of them trying to demonstrate how masculine in front of their other friends? The questions just uh, I was obsessed with them, and I spent the last twenty years researching that that I turned a very negative event into something very positive, and I hope that the book is a is like a combination of all that. Certainly, it's kind of a new guide going forward as to how perhaps we can get a grip on all this. Now, is it possible to stop the proliferation of hate with all the Internet and everything that people have access to 
and that they can get the information out there so quickly. And people, as you pointed out early, earlier, reacts to that. It obviously, it feels like an intractable problem right now. It feels like something that doesn't have an answer to it. And I would argue that the science of prejudice and hate does have some of the answers. Um, and in lab-based experiments, um, we've discovered how to reduce prejudice in people who are suitably motivated um, and how to stop hate. But how you transpose those lab experiments from that very enclosed environment into why the society is the key problem to initiate programs that would see the eradication of things like systemic racism and so on, essentially change society for the better. Now, I am under no illusion that, that the, the points that I make in the book about actually changing things would require huge amounts of resources. And that's true. And I, I think we have to be upfront about that and, and accept that where we're at today, the damage that's been done to society by things like uh, social media, um, the acceleration of hate online, nefarious actors, state actors uh, that benefit from a divided society. You know, it, it does benefit people to divide and conquer that, that we have a long way to go and it would take an enormous amount of resources to, to change this. But the one positive thing I do end up on in the book is, is, the, is the wisdom and the power of the crowd. Um, and that's us, you know, users of social media, um, citizens. If we were to take a cold, hard look at ourselves, recognize the prejudices that we all have, understand how prejudice works and how it, we, can be, we can be hijacked and we can be, you know, hacked to hate, then we can start seeing changing ourselves but also changing others. And I, and I argue that the current problem with social media, and that's us, that's the users of social media. And if we become responsibilized, we take responsibility for what's going on online. And instead of scrolling on by, when we see an act of hatred or abuse or harassment or whatever it might be, and we stand up instead and become upstanders instead of bystanders. And if we do that on mass, then I think we'll start to see some change. And the book ends on a, in a, call, on a call to action, a clarion call, if you like, uh, asking readers to stand up against hatred when they see it instead of, instead of thinking it's got nothing to do with them. It's got everything to do with them. You know, there was something in the United States called the Fairness Doctrine that when the media and television and radio was really getting underway, the FCC was created. The reason I mention that, though, is that we had a fairness doctrine in the United States till 1987. If you were on the radio, TV, management, ownership, every seven years you had to re reapply for a license. And one of the criteria was that if you presented any opinion on the air, you had to provide the other person, another party, to provide another point of view. Until that yeah. went away in 1987, when that was removed, that's when Rush Limbaugh, exploded in the 90s because his show would not i'm maintaining this is my opinion his show of three hours he could say whatever he wanted lie about whatever he wanted when that went away yeah. again i think that was another problem that really started to get out of control in this country genies out of the bottle will it ever go back i wish we had the fairness doctrine back in this country but i don't think that'll ever happen yeah, I think that's a really astute observation. Um, I, I am familiar with it, and I always compare it to similar doctrine we have with the BBC, which has to be impartial uh, when it comes to reporting the news, whereas other channels 
don't have to be. So we have new channels emerging in the UK now, like GB News, which is a bit like your Fox News. Yet there's, there's, it's not incumbent on every channel to follow the doctrine, but the publicly funded TV channel, the BBC, obviously, as you'd be very familiar with, has to abide by, by that, which I think is, it would be a, it would be nightmarish, I think, for us to see that abandoned in some way. I think, I think it would, it would feel, um, completely counterintuitive. To, to see that disappear. But I think that's a really astute observation of yours. And yes, I think the absence of that has certainly seen the emergence of, of some very questionable news coverage in the US. Um, but also it's interesting to see how, how something like that could also, uh, and it never would, of course, but it could be used to regulate something like social media because that, it seems completely unregulated at present. I know there are some state laws that are being introduced, certainly in California, in terms of regulating certain forms of content, certainly in relation to myths and disinformation. And it terrifies me, actually, where we could end up with social media. And I think we really need to make a stand uh, against these tech giants in some way. I, I always consider them like rowdy teenagers. We need to gain control over them in some way. You know, I think Germany has a very stringent law in place right now. We've got a few laws that are just about to um, come, into, come into force in the UK and in Europe more generally that will we'll have some very serious consequences. In terms of, let's say, what can be done is Fox News has a lot of advertisers. And if you could put an effective boycott together yeah. and say, we're not going to buy your pillows, okay. you boycott the advertisers. That would be the way to do it. And I don't understand yeah. why that hasn't happened Money to the degree yeah. it should. And that would do it. With Twitter, for example, that's exactly what happened when Elon Musk took over and started to tear the company apart, what seemed like tearing it apart. The advertisers pulled out. So we've seen an example of that happen, I suppose, haven't we? And it's interesting. Now Elon's trying to monetize everything he possibly can. But it did work. So the evidence does suggest that legislation does kind of work. In the U.S., when they introduced their net DG law, which imposed fines up to 50 million euro for hate speech that wasn't removed within 24 hours, illegal hate speech, I should say, some, some evaluative evidence by economists shows that actually far-right messaging on platforms in Germany went down by about 30% since the law was introduced. So it, it does seem to have an effect. What we need is government intervention, people like us taking taking responsibility. Yeah, when you say government intervention too, people are going to go, oh my gosh, the government. Well, the government is us. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. I mean, but people now, it's like anything about the government. Oh my gosh. But we got to step back and go, we elect the people. It's our government. I guess a big question would be to you, Matthew, is that do you think from all the things we've talked about, though, that the hate in the world today is much greater than it's always been or is it just more exposed? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a tough one to answer, to be fair, because it's about measurement. And as, as a scientist and a criminologist, one of the key things we have to get right before we do anything is figure out how we measure the phenomenon under study. And how do you measure hate is a, is a really tough one. Um, it might surprise you, for example, that, you know, in the U.S., there were around just over 7,000 hate crimes recorded in 2021. In the U.K., 150,000 hate crimes were recorded in the same period. And that, that's a massive massive um, gap doesn't mean that the uk is actually more intolerant and hateful than the us it basically means we're measuring it very differently um so working out whether or not there is more hate now than before is, is a tough it's a tough ask because of the measurement issues but 
the point you made there uh, after that is that, you know, hate is possibly having more of an impact or it's more insidious in some ways because of new technology. And I think that we're living in an age now where hate is a 24-7 phenomenon. Um, it's If you think of kids in schools and, and bullying and hateful bullying that they experience, it used to be confined to the playground and the walk-in and walk-home from school. Now it's it's invading the home through Snapchat, TikTok, you know, and the rest. There is no safe haven for kids in terms of bullying these days, which is why we're seeing strong evidence suggesting that social media has is having a significant detrimental effect on the mental health of, of our younger generations. So I, I think hate is more insidious than it, it has been before because of technology. And I think that's really where we need to focus our attention. Anything else before we go, Matthew? The book ends on a very hopeful note. It, it does indicate how readers might want to eradicate hate using a seven-step process. So I think uh, I end on a very positive note in the end. Well, thanks to Matthew Williams for spending time with us. If you would like to get a copy of his book, all you need to do is Google The Science of Hate. If there's anything you heard that we discussed today and you have your own comments that you would like to share with us, you can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425 425- 653-1166. Leave your thoughts and I'll get them on the air. Just try to keep them as short as possible. Again, that phone number is 425-653-1166. In his book, he had what was called the seven steps to stop hate. One, we must recognize false alarms. The human threat detector locked away inside our brains has evolved to keep us safe. It's done a great job getting us to where we are, but it's now out of date. We must question our prejudgments of others. Number two, we must question our own prejudices. The human brain cannot process all the information, so it takes shortcuts, which go on to influence opinions. These shortcuts in the form of stereotypes can be responsible for how we see others, especially strangers. We should never act on first impressions. Number three, we should not shy away from engaging in contact with others different from us. Think of your closest circle of friends, those you would turn to in a crisis. Now think of your neighbors and the people you see at the coffee shop. Think of the color of all the people's skins their gender, sexual orientation, religion, etc. We have much more in common than we are different. Number four, we must take the time to put ourselves in the shoes of others. Viewing counter-stereotypical characters on TV and spending time with others who are different from us can teach us about what it's like to be somebody else. Would I trade places with them? And if not, why not? Number five, we must not allow divisive events to get the better of us. Periods of economic recession, high-profile court cases, and terror attacks all have something in common. They have an incredible power to divide, but also to unite instead. This is because of our deeply held values. Six, we must burst our filter bubbles. Despite the global reach of the internet, our contacts and exposure to viewpoints online may be less diverse 
than in our offline world. It is safe to assume most of us either actively avoid groups and information that do not match our preferences. And seven, we must all become hate incident first responders. When we see hate, we must call it out. What a great interview, um, Eric. I, I love I love the message of that. You know, that's a big part of what these programs like Voices of Experience on this station are all about is, is looking for solutions and moving the needle into the positive range. Absolutely. I love that. Great job, Paul. Wonderful interview with Matthew Williams. And congratulations to him for taking such a bad situation and turning into something very positive for the world. Now, Alex, prior to the break, you had mentioned, or prior to the interview, you had mentioned that in your school there wasn't bullying. Would you say that's because it was a smaller school? A hundred percent. Okay. And and you've never struck me as someone who would want to boil, bully other people. No. Right? Because your mom would get on you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, right. with her being the principal, you know. Yeah. It's even worse. <laughs> well, for someone my age, it's nice to see the changes that have happened over the, the last many decades with things like hate. And there is, I feel like there's more of an understanding of people that are not like yourself these days. And I hope as a young person, you and your friends feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Good. That's what I like to hear. Well, how about a little bit of comedy? Let's go to Pat Cashman. Uh, Pat Cashman is on this show from pretty much every week. And uh, he brings his comedic stylings to you, and he's pretty dang funny. So let's go. Yeah, and this is a clip from Peculiar. Peculiar. (laughs) Peculiar (laughs) Podcast. See, you notice I didn't say it because I was waiting for you to say it. Yeah, yeah. Paul always has trouble with it as well. Peculiar Podcast. So I don't feel so bad, but yeah, Peculiar Podcast. Thanks for taking that one. Yeah, here we go. One of the... I can't believe how prolific this man was as a composer of music. Bert Bacharach has passed away at the age of 94, so he had a good run. With a guy named Hal David, who wrote the lyrics to these songs, he just wrote a buttload of big hits. Yep. I want the world to know the story of my life. Would you stay? Don't go. Please stay. Don't go. I don't want you. I don't need you. I don't love you anymore. Baby, it's you. Sha-la-la-la-la. The man who shot Liberty Valent. He shot Liberty Valent. And make it Watch you, pussycat! Whoa! 
Bob's new pussycat. Whoa, 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 whoa. I believe in love. And Lisa Foster, perhaps the worst song of ever, and they didn't even mention this in his obituary. What? And I understand why, because I'll it be is the judge of that. No, you 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 will be the judge of it because it's gotta be one of the most misogynistic songs ever. It's probably one of Trump's favorite songs. What? It's Wives and Lovers. Oh. Check it out. Hey, little girl, comb your hair. Fix your makeup, soon he will open the door. Don't think because there's a ring on your finger, you need to try anymore. Unbelievable. It just doesn't it just doesn't fit in his canon of songs at all, but there it is. Run to his arms the moment he comes home to you. I'm wanting you. Yeah. And that's Jack Jones singing it. Wives and Lovers. Yeah, that's a good one. You're right. Uh, Wives should always be lovers, too. Rush to his arms the moment he comes home to you. Rush. He's almost there. Don't stomp over to his arms. Rush to his arms. And have dinner, yeah, have dinner waiting. Have, maybe that's why I don't have a relationship, because I've not rushed into anybody's arms. I've just sort of stomped over to them reluctantly. <laughs> All right. Uh, a clip from Peculiar Podcast with Pat Cashman. And Lisa Foster, of course, talking about the legendary Burt Bacharach, Mm -hmm. who passed on back in February of this year, February 9th, uh, at the age of 94. So lived a long, full life. But goodness gracious, all those songs that he co-wrote. Amazing. And all the artists that got to sing them. I mean, I knew every single one of the songs except the last one. And if I had that Yeah, song, I didn't know that one. But if I put that on the turntable, my wife would take it off. That'd be upside <laughs> my head, I'm sure. Maybe not one of, <laughs> not one of Bert's the best. No. But, uh, hey, you can't. they all can't be winners, right? Yeah. <laughs> Pat Cashman and Lisa Foster, if you want to check out the podcast, go to PeculiarPodcast.com. All right, let's do a little Voices of History. Absolutely. And uh, talk about uh, this day in history uh, it is the 9th of August, so looking back, um, let's see, can you give me the date here? I'm looking for the date. Uh, Gerald R. R. Ford, now I'm date by the year, I mean, Gerald R. Ford, Gerald Ford, uh, was sworn in as President of the United States, succeeding Richard Nixon, who had resigned. What year? Was this 1976? 
No, but close. Ooh. Go back, Alex, back to your history days. It's in school. You're in school right now. You should have this. Boom. 1974. Oh, okay. Dang close. Yeah. Do you know the city on this day in history, it's a very unfortunate item, I guess, that uh, received the second atomic bomb? So everybody knows in a way of Hiroshima being the first. What was right. the name of the city that was bombed, the second one? You know, Nagasaki, I believe, Nagasaki, right? Nagasaki, yeah. correct, 1945. Um, this is interesting. And, it, and now Oppenheimer is in theaters. Yes, You know, yeah. the, considered the father of the atomic bomb. Uh, so, you know, it's funny how history is rhyming again, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, have you seen that movie? I haven't yet, but I understand it's really good. I understand that, too. I think it's three hours, but I hear the acting is fantastic. Um, and uh, definitely want to check it out. Okay, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, 1173. So this is stepping back away. Oh, yeah. But something I didn't know, it took nearly 200 years for the Leaning Tower of Pisa to be built. Wow. So it started on this day in 1173. <laughs> <laughs> it started leaning. <laughs> well, what happened or is- Or they noticed it. Yeah, well, they had built the, 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 the structure on basically unstable soil. Right, and so the it was already the first phase one was already leaning, so it took them a while to figure out, and um, so the tower began to sink after construction had progressed to the second floor in eleven seventy eight. So they took a little time off here, about five years, to figure out what was going on. This was due that a mere three meter, so nine foot foundation set in weak, unstable subsoil was the cause. Construction was subs- uh, subsequently halted for the better part of a century as the Republic of Pisa was almost continually engaged in battles. So the Battle of Genoa, Lucha, Florence, all these battles are happening, so they got to stop construction. So when it finally resumed, in an effort to compensate for the tilt, the engineers just built the floors on one side taller than the other. So to sort of add weight. Interesting. It, right? Yeah. Um, Necessity is the mother of invention. Right. right. So this is like, yeah. Maybe start over, but... You know, you know, as a kid, I always thought it was the Leaning Tower of Pizza. Of pizza? Yeah. And if there's not a pizza place uh, oh. in Italy called the yeah. Leaning Tower of Pizza, then they are missing a bet. You better get that domain right now. <laughs> get that domain. Open up that pizza place. Uh, because of this, the tower is curved. Construction was halted again in 1284 when the, uh, I guess it would be Pisans, were defeated by the Genoese in the Battle of Meloria. The seventh, uh, the seventh floor was completed in 1319, and the bell chamber at the top there, finally, in 1372. There's seven bells, each for the musical notes on the major scale. Did you know that? I did not know that. And so the, the, the largest one was installed in 1655. Who knows? Maybe they're still slapping paint on this thing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it still stands to this day. So I'd love to see it. I'd yeah, like I'd, I'd like to see that at some point, too. And apparently San Francisco having a problem with one of their uh, towers leaning oh, is at that this right? point. Yeah, so, you know, history rhyming again. So all these time, after all these times, <laughs> we're, we're designing things with computers and we're still messing. We're still <laughs> all right. having things all lean. Right. Yeah. One last one. This goes out to the fans of the show, Voices of Experience. This Canadian hockey player, who was he, was traded from Edmonton Oilers to the Los Angeles Kings in 1988. Probably the only... I'm not a huge hockey fan, but it's the only one I would know. Any idea? I know. If it's the only one you would know, it maybe is the only one I would know. Let's hear um, it. Wayne Gretzky. Boom! There you go. Yay! <laughs> if there was a prize, you'd win it. Thank you so much, Britannica.com. Britannica. Remember having 
uh, Britannica in the house. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everything's online now. You can find anything. Right. So thank you, you for that. You don't have to lug around 80 pounds of encyclopedias when you move now. <laughs> no, we don't have to do that it's anymore. It's a nice thing. Well, let's go right into the next interview. This is um, Paul Casey, who is host of this program. He's taking a bit of a hiatus today. This is him interviewing uh, Dr. Dory Borgeson, uh, who is dean of the College of Veterinary Medicine at Washington State University. He's going to talk about animal care and the role that the vet school is playing in conjunction with the Paul G. Allen School of Global Health to fight infectious diseases. And if you look at it, Wazoo leads in a lot of this in terms of the study. It's amazing. Dr. Dory Borgeson, Dean of Washington State University's College of Veterinary Medicine since July 2020, has joined me after more than a decade at the University of California at Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. She established herself as a very well-respected pioneer and leader in the field of veterinary medicine. She is also well-known in the field of research and has received many accolades in that field. Washington State University is the fifth oldest vet college in the United States. Now, I have a long history with WSU, and I really didn't know that. Mm -hmm. I knew we had a renowned vet school, but I had no idea that Mm -hmm. it was the fifth oldest. So let's just start with that. We opened in 1899, mostly focused on agriculture and definitely the state of Washington. And our first class was three students. And the first building, I love this, was a shed. The cost was not to exceed $60. So um, we have come a long way from there. You know, interestingly, WSU has always been a leader in academic rigor. So we were the first one, the first vet school in the nation to require a high school diploma. And we were the first to develop a four-year curriculum. And then since then, there's been a shift that we're more allied with medicine, really, than agriculture, you know, medicine of all sorts. And so now, where are we? We educate students from all over the world. We are all or part of 11 buildings, including an academic teaching hospital. We have over 190 faculty, 300 staff. We have 132 veterinary students each year, of which about 80% are women. We are ranked fourth in total research expenditures among 33 veterinary colleges in the U.S. So we have had and continue to grow. So it's come a long way since that stable in 1899 when it started. (laughs) 1899. I wonder how long the legislature debated that, whether $60 was too much and (laughs) maybe you have to cover it. I know. I love that. The quote was something like, not to exceed $60. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) I would have wrote a check for them. You could have had my name, you know, named after the college, the college then. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) On a a personal level, what attracted you to the uh, veterinary medicine in the first place and then your transition to WSU? So I was um, a very familiar story in veterinary medicine. I was the girl that always wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, I've had a deep connection to animals since I can remember. Um, where the owner of many animals started working at veterinary clinics when I was 13. Very deep connection to the environment and the outdoors, and then also the science. So that's kind of a pretty traditional trajectory for a lot of women in veterinary medicine right now. I grew actually to love more academic medicine. I think my commitment to science and research and leadership as well over time. And then WSU has just been a great fit for me. I mean, I love the Pacific Northwest. I'm enjoying the Palouse. And the college in particular is really full of kind of hardworking, really gritty, innovative faculty and staff that really care. It's a passionful profession, and our college definitely reflects that. So I felt pretty immediately at home here. Um, Our students are really amazing, and we draw on students regionally, you know, from Idaho, Utah, Montana. They love our program because it's focused on all species still. We don't track. We have a great teaching hospital. 
we actually have a lot of very innovative programs, models of care, really impactful. Um, so when I, I really realized when I first came to WSU that change was really possible and people like being here because you could still build programs. So we have a very particular culture, uh, like every university. There is a pretty incredible and co- increasing need for veterinarians. As you probably know very well, the human-animal bond is strong and not going away. Um, and we fill so many roles in society, right? Shelter medicine, rural medicine, food safety, biomedical research. So I think there's about four new veterinary programs in the last year or two and many more coming. When you were at the um, University of California at Davis as a vet med student, you started a clinic Mm -hmm. that was modeled after today, the Doni Co. Pet Clinic that's based in Seattle. And for those those who don't know the Doni Co. Pet Clinic, it's a clinic that provides free pet care for low-income and homeless people in the Seattle area. And it's been around for mm-hmm. over 35 years and was started by two WSU grads, uh, Co. and uh, mm-hmm. Doni, together. So having mm-hmm. said all that, how does it feel for you to come full circle and to see that yeah. WSU vet med students that are volunteering now at the Doni Co. Mm-hmm. Pet Clinic in yeah. Seattle? Uh, it's just awesome. It is really funny. I came to Seattle with a friend of mine, a classmate, um, and we saw the Donico Clinic, and literally we just got to talking about it and uh, started and decided to start a clinic in Sacramento based on the same concept, um, pet care for people either low-income or experiencing homelessness operating out of loaves and fishes in Sacramento. And it's still there. It's, it's called the Mercer Clinic. It's also evolved like the Donico to be this amazing clinic still has volunteer vet students from UC Davis. And then when I came up here, one of my classmates actually is a long-term veterinarian at the Doni Code Clinic. And I just, it just is really um, wonderful, one, to see the incredible legacy that it continues and has been sustained over time. It is growing, in fact. And, you know, access to care is a real issue for us in veterinary medicine. As everyone knows, it's very expensive to take your animal to a veterinarian, even for routine care. And high-level care is even more expensive, and we don't have the same insurance system. Some animals are insured, but most are not. And so there's a lot of painful decisions for people regarding how they can and how much they can care for their, for their pets. Um, people will often do things for their pets and then you know, give up their own ability to have food or um, a place to stay that night. And so... Access to care, spectrum of care, these are new initiatives in veterinary medicine that have really will be, you know, played out in places like the Mercer Clinic and the Donico Clinic. So I just, I love the fact that I'm in a state that's had such a long, rich history in that. And along those lines, this is something where the UW and WSU can get along. And that is an initiative that's been (laughs) entered together called One Health. This to me is extremely exciting. Could you explain that? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's extremely exciting to me, too. Again, it's an area where University of Washington, Washington State University work together, and it's been a true collaborative partnership from the bottom, from the beginning. Um, so it's an initiative where pe- in a place where people with pets can access medical and veterinary care at the same time. So we have an amazing WSU veterinarian and rotating veterinary students. They team up with a nurse practitioner, from Neighbor Care Health, and then University of Washington, medical, nursing, social work, public health, and pharmacy students. And twice a month, they provide care to young adults experiencing homelessness and their pets. 
has a close working relationship with the Paul G. Allen School of Global Health. The Paul G. Allen School for Global Health is actually one of the five schools in our college. The program was funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Paul G. Allen Capstone Gift, and that was dedicated in 2012. And, you know, why is that important? It's because the Allen School highlights the relationship between human health, animal health, and the health of the environment. And that is something that veterinarians, in the way they think, have known forever. And it's something that obviously is gaining traction. And the reason the Allen School does it so well is we have programs that are sustainably based in East Africa, specifically Kenya and Tanzania and Guatemala, and we educate and serve locally. Local local faculty, local students. And our goal is to increase in-country capacity. Right? So we're not taking students and faculty out of the country, training them here. So many of those students in those programs stay in the United States. We are serving locally and making sure that each of these countries is developing their own base of education and research. My thanks to Dr. Dory Borgeson, Dean of Washington State University's College of Veterinary Medicine. Welcome to Spotlight. I am so happy to have in studio, in person, Colin Weatherwax. We're going to talk about uh, Cars for Kids. He is CEO. Colin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You couldn't have picked a better week to come on out here. You're from <laughs> Dallas, a little hot there. Yeah, it's over 100 degrees and a nice uh, 66 degrees coming in the studio this morning. It was it was beautiful. Yeah, all beautiful. right, good deal. Yeah, I know. Welcome to paradise, at least in the summertime, <laughs> the Pacific Northwest. Well, I'm glad you made the trek up here. Cars for Kids, this is a nonprofit organization. You operate nationally, all 50 states, and you're now expanding services to here in Washington state. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, you know, we, we operate in all 50 states. So what we are looking for as far as expansion goes is we're looking to help the communities that we advertise in. And uh, one of the big things that we've seen is an uptick in donations in the state of Washington. So what do we want to do with that? We want to partner with organizations that help kids in the state of Washington, in the Pacific Northwest, as you mentioned, in Seattle, some of the suburbs around here. Um, so that way, whenever you donate a vehicle to us, you know that those funds are going directly to help and support your community that you live and work in. I liked your website. I went to carsforkids.com, and that's C-A-R-S for kids.com. And it's really easy to navigate, and I like all the options. One of them was an auction. Yeah. You can follow auctions. And I saw in your bio that you actually have an auctioneer license. I absolutely do. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so you uh, can, in a pinch, you can get in there. Yeah. Sell absolutely. some cars. And uh, we're based out of Dallas. So we actually have a live auction in Dallas three Saturdays a month. And so uh, it's really fun to get on, get on the mic and, uh, you know, do a little bit of auctioneering. That's great. Um, but you know, it's all, it's all for the kids. So it's a lot of fun. Well, let's talk about the kids. Um, obviously you're looking for car donations, but you can also do monetary donations there at the website. Mm-hmm. Uh, Okay, I've donated a car. What happens next? Yeah, absolutely. So visit our website. You you say, hey, I have a vehicle I'm interested in donating. So what we do is we work around your schedule to get that vehicle picked up. So whatever time is convenient for you, um, we'll kind of schedule within that time frame. Um, if you have the title paperwork, that's perfect. If not, we will help you obtain a title. We get that vehicle picked up. We get it off your property. We offer a $50 Visa gift card in addition to a full tax write-off. So you're you're writing off the car, not the kid, which is what we like to say. Uh, You're also getting a $50 Visa gift card, and you're clearing space, clearing space in your lot. 
That's wonderful. And and you'll help in a sense of uh, the paperwork for the IRS. Is there? Yes. I would get something back from you saying, here's what it sold for. Correct. And, okay. Yeah. So we provide a 1098C tax form, um, which then in turn provide to your CPA. Um, and then you just file that off of your taxes. So. Well, that's wonderful. Okay. So the, all these dollars are combined. Then how do you help kids? Yeah. So we originated in Texas uh, about 40 years ago. And wow. how did we originate? We were born out inside of the Texans Can Academies. And they service youth that are um, high school dropouts. They are prevention and recovery school. And so these are kids that, for whatever reason, didn't work in the public school uh, system. And so they go to Texans Can and they get a second chance at that high school diploma. And so, as you mentioned, we're looking to expand. So we've, we've realized that over the past few years, we've received so many donations outside of the state of Texas that we mm. want to start giving back to those states that we're receiving them from. And so our mission is to help kids graduate, to give them an opportunity to build a better future. And so we are looking to partner with organizations here in the Seattle area or in the state of Washington that truly encompass that mission and truly go to help kids Give them an opportunity to build a better future. You know, I think that's really smart. And I, and I think it's wonderful for those who donate because uh, my wife, for instance, loves to donate to local charities and, mm-hmm. and see that the money sort of resides in our community, if you will, or right. greater community. Absolutely. Sounds like it can happen this way as well. Yes, absolutely. And that's what we're trying to do. So we're trying to uh, market to, obviously, this, this new region that we're kind of uh, coming into. But also, we want to reach out to the donors after they make the donation and say, hey, look at the, what your donation did. Look mm. at, you know, Timmy over here who now has a better chance at a successful life right. um, because of your vehicle donation. And that's that's huge for us. Well, and often you'll drive through, even in my own neighborhood, you'll see cars that have been there a while. And you're wondering, okay, what are they doing with that car? Are they just going to let it sit there? It's a third car, maybe a fourth car. Mm-hmm. They just don't need it, right. maybe. And they don't want to take the hassle to sell it. Yeah. This is a great option. Absolutely, because we remove that hassle. Um, so you give us a call. We get the we get the information that we need in order to get that vehicle picked up, and we we remove the hassle from you, and you get a tax write off. You get a fifty dollars gift card, and you know that your donation is going to help kids. That's great, and it all begins really at the website. Absolutely. Okay, carsforkids.com. Kids face so many challenges right now. Our daughter's thirty two, and I'm almost glad that she is thirty two because <laughs> I think it'd be really hard to be a parent in today's world. There's just so much facing kids, so much. Just technology. Benny here in studio, we talk all the time about his kids and FaceTime on on screens and Mm -hmm. things like that and the special challenges he has with younger ones. So um, to those kids that are out there, what is all covered? I mean, are you open to things like mental health? Uh, charities that deal with mental health. That's a huge thing with children right now. Yeah, absolutely. So in California, we actually partner with the San Diego Center for Children who specialize in mental health services, and they have for over 125 years in that community. And so what does that mean? It means that the kids go to them knowing that there's struggles, knowing that there have been issues in their life, and they're looking for a way out. They're looking to get that education to be with their family and learn and grow and become productive members of society. And so mental health services nowadays, especially after COVID, um, are, are more important, I, I would argue to say, um, just because of that transition from, okay, going to school in 2019, mm-hmm. having to do remote learning in 2020, and now people right. going back to school or doing that hybrid type model, that's a lot for, for a kid to, to, to take in and take on. And as you mentioned, being a parent nowadays is completely different than it it might have been 20, 30 years ago. 
That's wonderful. And and of those dollars that are donated, do you have an estimate on percentage that actually reaches the kids? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously we have an organization to run. We are a 501c3 mm-hmm. nonprofit. Um, it does cost money to do these marketing things, to, to pay the people that actually uh, answer the phone whenever you do call and do the title paperwork. Um, but what we like to say is 100% of the net proceeds go back to the communities that you live and work in. Um, what does that mean gross-wise? It's about 20% mm-hmm. of the gross revenue that we receive in each state that we try and give back to every state. There you go. There you go. Well, you've been dedicated to it for a while. You started 2011 with Cars for Kids as part of the team itself. You're still, I'm sure, part of the team, but now you had the team. You're Absolutely. CEO. Uh, talk about that journey. Yeah. Uh, so I actually started with the company whenever I was 18. Um, I started cleaning the cars, taking pictures of the cars. Okay. And, uh, you know, worked in every department after that. So I was answering the phone. I was doing the title department. Um, working with different programs, different expansion things, and then um, eventually worked my way to assistant director, director, and now CEO. And so um, I I know what it means when people go to donate a vehicle. I know what that looks like. And, you know, it's been a blessing uh, to be able to work for this organization for so long. And I've seen, you know, the gambit of, of vehicles that are donated. I've seen vehicles come in with trees attached to them. I've seen <laughs> Bentleys be donated. I've seen oh. Rolls Royces, BMWs, high-end luxury vehicles. Um, and then, you know, I open the hood one day and there's there's a possum or a snake. So, you know, we <laughs> kind of get a little bit of everything. And so that's what we like to say. We take vehicles in any condition. Yeah, and but try not to donate the, you know, the local foreign <laughs> fauna there. Or folks. at least let us know. <laughs> Open the first for sure. Cars for Kids is the website to check out. Colin, thank you so much for your time. I do want to ask one final question, though. It must be personal for you at this point. What is it that drives you as CEO, and how does that then inspire your team to just do the best for kids? Everyone has a job. Everyone has something that they have to that they have to do in order to provide for their family. And I'm no different. the The good thing for me and what makes me feel good is that every time I go to work, every time I go for an interview like this one, I know that it's going to help kids. It's going to help the kids that are forgotten or the kids that are struggling the most. And so uh, being able to you know, wake up and know, yes, I have meetings today, but that it goes for the greater good is huge for me. And um, you know, it's, a, it's a very selfless position, and I know that. And it's, uh, it's, it's a very important job that needs to be done. And it, it just makes me, you know, it makes me count my blessings every day because I think back to my childhood and um, seeing some of the kids that we've positively impacted from donations, I didn't have a, a rough childhood in comparison. And so it's, nice. it's really nice to have that perspective and to, to see the fruits of the labor at the end of the day and see those kids positively impacted and go on to, to a better life. I'm going to leave it at that wonderful statement. Thank you, Colin. Enjoy the rest of your time up here with you and your family. Enjoy the best that all the PNW has to offer. You're going to have a lot of it over the next few days. So, Absolutely. So thank you. And I'll end it with just right off the car, not the kid. There you go. There you go. Check out carsforkids.com. That's carsforkids.com. Learn more. Thank you for listening to this week's Voices of Experience right here on AM 1150 KKNW and, of course, AM 880 KIXI. This also goes to podcasts, so be sure you check it out there as well. We are going to wrap it up. I'm going to give uh, a bit of the last word to my nephew, Alex. What do you got there, Alex? Hey, thank you, Eric. Uh, I just want to shout out my family real quick. They're driving over to the West, try and keep all the wheels on the ground, and a shout-out to my girl back home, quote-unquote, the punk. The punk. There you go. Join us next week for another edition of Voices of Experience 
right here on two of your favorite radio stations.